Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Say It Loud Network presents Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith. Whether you've read one of his numerous New York Times bestselling books or watched one of his hit Netflix shows like The Stranger or The Five, somehow or some way, you've entered the creative world of Harlan Coben, constantly on the top of bestseller lists. With 75 million copies of his creations in print, he masterfully spins suspenseful tales of deception, emotional hijinks, and murder. He's a man of discipline, optimism, and immense talent, but never takes any of his success or its trappings too seriously. Sit back and enjoy the conversation. Harlan, welcome to Conversations. Thanks. Good to be here, Doc. I want to start with, we all know about it, 75 million books in print, international bestseller, you're the first author to win the three awards, the Seamus, the Edgar, the Anthony. You have a legion of fans all over the world. In fact, you may be more famous overseas than you are in the U.S. Uh, from what I see on Instagram. And I love your, your you have rabid fans that I wish to have one day who are constantly posting your stuff. But I want to get behind all this for a second. I want to start with Newark and Livingston, New Jersey. You're a Jersey boy all the way, aren't you? Yeah, um, I've lived here my whole life. As you mentioned, I was born in Newark, um, uh, Beth Israel Hospital, which a lot of people from my generation are. Uh, we moved out to Livingston, which is, I think, seven or eight miles um, from Newark, and that's where I grew up, and now I live 20 minutes away. So I've been here my whole life. So when I first read your books way back when, I'll get into that in a second, but I was just surprised at how local your geography was for the stories. That part didn't surprise me because a lot of great authors take pick a nice local geography to make it work. What surprised me was that I didn't understand how all of these people from other countries were in love with a story that took place in a little out of the way town in New Jersey. I mean, how does that happen? Yeah, one of the things I've learned, um, well, first of all, thanks. Uh, we can get into New Jersey in a second, why it's interesting, I think, for most people. But I think the key is what I've learned is the more specific you are, the more universal the appeal. So, yeah, I think the books are in 45 languages. But if I say, you know what, I'm not selling well in Bulgaria, I better do something to appeal to that audience. Or this town is too New Jersey. I better make it more every town USA. I think you lose something. You lose an edge. And it's not just true, by the way, for uh, novels. I have a friend, for example, who was in the uh, fashion industry and his stuff was really kind of wild colors was crazy wild colors and someone said to him you know what if you if you guys also were to make the brand a little more a little tone it down a little bit you can probably get more people as soon as you do that that's when you lose what makes it special when you try to make it for everybody so whatever you're doing uh, the more specific the appeal the more specific you are the more universal the appeal in the case of New Jersey I always think of the three S's Sinatra Springsteen and the Sopranos, right? Those are those are those guys are all Jersey. They never let the Jersey out of them. Well, one's not a guy, but um, and that sort of has to. I think it's your attitude. You know, you have to kind of do that when you're when you're writing or doing any sort of creative process. We're friends with both friends with a bunch of people who do cooking shows or whatever. When they try to do something that's not them, it just isn't isn't as authentic. 
Absolutely. Well said. You know what? I've never asked you this before, believe it or not. All these years we've been friends. <laughs> what was your family like? Uh, I grew up well, yeah. in Livingston. I was the middle brother of three. There's three of us. Both my, and my two brothers were both geniuses. Uh, both had perfect SAT scores. Both went to Yale undergraduate and Harvard Law. Um, one graduated Harvard Law. I think he was only 21 at the time, maybe 22. So both were geniuses. I was the, relatively speaking, moronic brother in the middle, the one with more personality, maybe. Um, uh, my parents were great. My dad died young. He died at 59. My mom died young, too, at 60. So both were gone fairly early. Um, and a lot of the writing that I do, I think, reflects that. Um, when I created Myron Bolitar, I wanted, you know, I'd seen a lot of crime series where the detective hates their parents or their parents were abusive to them or they have no relationship with them. So maybe it was partly therapy. I had Myron living actually with his parents in their basement for the first few books. And his parents had played a a crucial role in all of his books. And I get melodramatic uh, when I write parents off in the parental scenes, but that's my therapy. If you don't like it, just skip it. I do get a little maudlin and sentimental. But I think um, it's one of the things that I've discovered with Myron is that, uh, especially Myron Boltar, my series, but a lot of them, they have that relationship with their parents that I envision I would have had had my parents survived. So um, that's, I think, the, the biggest part of my childhood that re reflect, reflects in the books is losing my parents at, you know, I wasn't a kid, but, but at fairly young ages, obviously. I'm turning 59 in about a week, and my dad was 59 when he died. So uh -huh. this will be a weird year for me. Wow. You know, it's interesting because when I, when I I read the Myron books, um, it didn't bother me that you were sentimental. In fact, like you said, it actually was a different angle uh, than what most books in this genre take when you talk about parents. You know, it's either the bad relationship or the overbearing relationship or the absent. And I actually it was refreshing to me to have that kind of perspective. And it made Myron actually more of a real person to me. Right. I could feel his heart. And that made a lot of sense to me. You know, it's interesting. So when you look at Myron, which is a great series, what part of Myron is Harlan Coben. Because they often say that they often say authors tend to write what is near and dear and close and that they understand well. Well the truth of the matter is and authors don't like to admit it that Myron Bolotar is me with wish fulfillment. I mean uh, we both played college basketball. He was a lot better. He's faster, he's stronger, um, he's smarter, he's funnier, he's better friend, I think he's more loyal. I do have him beat in two areas. One, I'm a better dancer, which I'll demonstrate later. <laughs> and two, I'm slightly wiser in the ways of women. This is no great shakes. It's like saying syphilis is better than gonorrhea. You know what I'm saying? But I've you know, been with my wife since uh, we were both in college, and Myron's love life is something of a, of a disaster. Um, but I did, as I kind of hinted to before, I created a sort of interesting tension for us where I gave Myron what he always wanted and I and uh, what I've always wanted and a Myron and I have what Myron always wanted. Myron's dream in life is to get married and move to the suburbs and have the barbecues in the backyard with the kids and all those sort of things, which is kind of my life. I have four kids uh, they're growing now, but um, so Myron is a little bit envious of me that I can't give him what he always wants. On the other hand, as I just mentioned, Myron has his parents still around and Myron gets to enjoy that relationship. So the relationship I've given Myron with his parents is what I imagine I would be having had my parents survive. And this over the years has made Myron where he's not me or an alter ego of me, but we've really gone on very divergent paths. Our lives have been very, very different. My life's worked out a lot better than his, quite frankly. And so um, that makes, I think, the series more interesting. For me. So um, it's interesting because, you know, 
people always say to me, you know, you're a doctor, you do TV, but like, when do you want to do this writing stuff? And I often have to like think through really like it almost changes every time I ask that question because I think about grammar school, how I love books. I think about um, my high school English teacher, uh, Mrs. Bierbauer, who I still talk to on Facebook. So I think about all these inspirations along the way, reading that Grisham book, um, you know, The Firm before it became The Firm. So I think about all the things along the way that kind of said, wow, this is pretty cool. What about Harlan Coben? When did Harlan Coben say... I actually want to be a published writer. Uh, I was in college. I had been, I actually was a political science major at Amherst College, which is a euphemism for I have no idea what I want to do with my life. <laughs> and uh, I spent the summer in Spain um, working as a tour guide for American tourists, not because I'm a brilliant linguist, but because my grandfather ran the travel agency and needed somebody. So I, I went there. I was much too young for the job. I was terrible at it. But I wanted to write a book about the experience. So I came back my senior year at Amherst and I looked to get a professor to help me or to, to do like as a thesis, but I'd never taken an English class. So I couldn't get one, but I just wrote it. I wrote while I was still a senior at Amherst, I wrote an entire novel and the novel was horrendous. It's somewhere in one of these boxes here. It's horrendous. But from that, I got the virus. I got the writing bug. And all of a sudden, I just wanted to write. I just wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write more. I started to write what I loved, which I call the people call it mystery or crime or thriller, but I call it the novel of immersion. The book you take on vacation, but you can't leave your hotel room because you have to know what happened to Myron and Wynn and all the characters in that story. And that's the kind of books that I've been writing since. And it didn't happen overnight. I wrote um, two or three that never got published. And I was published by a very small house. Then I was published only in paperback. And my 10th novel, Tell No One, was my breakout novel where it became a New York Times bestseller. And, you know, now it's been really, things have been pretty good since. But that wasn't my first book. It wasn't my second book. It was my 10th book. Um, and one of the things I see with writers now is, you know, I'll get emails from people saying, I've had written two self-published books I published on Amazon or whatever else. How come I'm not selling like you and Patterson? You know, it doesn't work that way. Be patient. Keep working on your craft. And those books shouldn't have sold that well. So it's an interesting, interesting thing. It takes it a while. The universe, the universe works out. And I'm going to get to Tell No One in a second. But before we get to Tell No One, I want to talk about the early years, right? Here you are. You're a young guy. You're working for the family travel business. Uh, you're not really 100% sure where you were going to go, what you're going to do, but you decide, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna do this writing gig. Not exactly a guarantee of financial success or career <laughs> success. Writing is kind of a gamble. Yeah. Um, and then you write all these books, right? And you're not selling, you know, tens of thousands of copies. You're not making millions of dollars. What is people hear about the term struggling artist? What goes through the mind when you are putting all this effort into this work and it takes a lot to write a book and you publish it and it's not blown off the charts. What what goes through your mind psychologically? What, what's the willpower like? Well, that's a really good question. And it's uh, something I've thought about a lot, but there's a, there's a few answers. One is my original goal, I'm a, a person who makes it a goal and is ambitious, but I set realistic goals and then I move on from there. So my dream was just to have a novel published. I never thought I'd make a living out of it or anything like that. I just wanted to one day see my novel in a bookstore. That was the whole goal. And then you hit that and you go, well, wouldn't it be great if you could have two? Just to show it wasn't a fluke. You'd have two <laughs> novels published. Well, wouldn't it be great to be able to scrape out some kind of living? 
being able to grow. Well, wouldn't it be great if you could somehow skim a bestseller list? Wouldn't it be great if you could hit number one? So each step has been incremental. So that's one thing. The second thing was when I first started, my first books were published in the late 80s, early 90s. Okay, so that's a long time ago. And even when the Myron Bolotar series started, it was 93, 94, 95, that area, mid-90s. We didn't know. Like, there was no Amazon rankings. There was So I didn't know I was a piece of crap. I don't know how else to say it. Like, I didn't realize I was a pimple on the ass of publishing. I figured, <laughs> I got, I'm with a legitimate publishing house. There's two copies in most Barnes & Nobles. I'm doing great. You know, I didn't know if I had known the odds back then, I may have given up a little easier, but I was getting enough positive feedback. That's why I tell people, stay offline. Your ranking on Amazon doesn't matter. The reviews on Amazon don't matter. None of that sells any books. If you took that time and put your head down and just wrote the next one, which is what I did, thinking if it doesn't happen this book, it'll happen next book, you'll be so much better off than worrying about how many tweets you're getting and all of that. It doesn't, none of that works. I mean, I'll give you a couple examples. Gillian Flynn, who's probably had the biggest books of the last two or three years, the Gone Girl book when it came out. So I said to people, why don't you follow what she's done, how she's done her social media and all that? She doesn't have it. I mean, she finally got a Twitter account, Gillian, I think, but she never goes on it or does anything with it. So I don't know anybody who's really made it that way through clever marketing or any of that. It really is the book at the end of the day, which is great. So just write the next book. So that was a big part of it, I didn't realize how small I was. When I was starting out, when I first did the Myron Bolotar series, I was with Dell, which is a well-known name, but I was doing what they call paperback originals. They did two a month, they paid us $5,000 for them. So that's 24 books a year they were doing. Of those books that I did over the course of two or three years with them, I think one other person on that list is still published. Uh, so it's 24 a year. Mm. One is even still published. Now they're doing them particularly well. So you have to kind of put those blinders on and just sort of, you know, not falsely believe, but I always felt I'm getting better. Um, why would I, I stop? And I didn't realize, I mean, yes, I, I, you know, on one level, I'd look at John Grisham or something like that, but I never looked at it with jealousy or envy. I looked at it more like, how can I be there too? What can I do to get there too? There was never any hate or any, oh, someone's got to give me the secret handshake and then I'll be there too. I didn't feel like I, like he didn't deserve it, any of that kind of stuff. That's just all negative. It was just, how can I get better at it? How can I write that book that people don't put down? See, that's what I love. I love the positive attitude where so many people, what we call hateration, this envy about people successful, they're not real writers, they're hacks. Instead, the approach you took was, hey, 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 you know, I'm looking at this guy. Let me see, how can I do that? What, you know, how can I find my success? And I think that that's so instructive for so many people. We tend to want to criticize those who we actually admire because it's almost like a reflex. But do you remember the first time you walked into a store and saw your book on a shelf and what it felt like? Oh, great. Yeah, I do. I remember a lot. I remember it all. I mean, and I still appreciate it all. So, you know, probably in another month or two, I'll be getting the copies of Win, which is the next book. Be my 30, I think my 33rd. I lose count, quite frankly, because I don't know how to count the kid book and there's a young adult books. But around the 33rd book. And when I open that box, I'll still be like a kid in a candy store. I still let myself get excited about the little things. When I get my new covers in, I'll put it, like, I'll wrap it around the book and I'll put it on a fireplace mantle, whatever else, to see what it looks like from a distance. I've never stopped, you know, trying to appreciate all of that, that stuff. And I've never stopped realizing what an honor and privilege it is to be where I am. And it's one of the reasons also I work still, I work so hard on making the book 
quote the best I can because I have a tremendous, you know, I live with a lot of insecurities <laughs> and all of that sort of thing, which is part of being a writer. But if you walk into a huge bookstore and you've somehow chosen my book, what an honor to me. And I will be very angry at myself if I let you down or I disappoint you. Um, not just because that means you won't buy the next one, but just as a human being, it's just, that's just not how I'm built. So I'm always trying to make it be at the books or the TV shows or whatever. I need in my mind to think the next one's going to be the best I've ever done. HC, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm getting a little emotional because I've tried to explain to people, I am 19 books in, 20 in April, and every single book excites me. It excites me when... My publisher sends me the cover. I do the same thing you do, by the way. I print them out. I show my family. I post them as inspiration next to my computer. It never, someone says, it doesn't get old. It absolutely never gets old. And I love that it's always fresh. Like I say, people, I love New York City, my favorite city in the world. Okay, a lot of great cities. New York's my favorite. And every time I lived in New York for many years, every time I land in New York City, I still have the adrenaline rush. I still have the excitement like the first time I ever went to that great city. And so hearing you say that, a guy who is such a mega bestseller is so awesome and I think so instructive for others about the drive to keep feeling fresh. You know, you mentioned Tell No One. So let's go to Tell No One. So you and I met, I'll never forget this. You and I met at Bryant Gumbel's house. It was a Christmas right. party. Yeah. And Bryant is a good friend of yours, a friend of mine. And Bryant had invited me and my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, I'd said to her, well, we got invited to Brian's house. Uh, it's a Christmas party. It's probably one of those. I was at NBC at the time. It's going to be one of these stuffy kind of blah, blah, blah. And then Brian called me and said, oh, by the way, I'm going to introduce you to a good friend of mine named Harlan Coben. He's an author. Oh, my goodness. I told my wife, we yeah, definitely got to go. Like, there, there, there's no question about it. I want to meet this guy, Harlan Coben. I had no idea who you were. I never read your books before, but I was an aspiring author, and I wanted to talk to a another, uh, uh, well, I wasn't an author yet, but I wanted to talk to an author about your life. And we get there, great apartment, as you know, and I yeah. make a beeline for you. And I took a way more in your time than I should have at the time. I was like a, a freaking groupie. Uh, but this is what I'll never forget. You said to me that night, I'm going to send you a book. It's called Tell No One. I said, okay, great. And you mentioned about how you wanted to write immersion where people are so immersed in your books. You said, I'm going to say, I'm saying this book called Tell No One. I said, okay, great. So I figured, oh, maybe in a couple of weeks, I'll get this book, Tell No One. The very next day, the messenger service at NBC delivers a package to my windowless office on the Dateline floor. And I open it and it's Tell No One. It was a little yellow paperback book. And I have to tell you, that book, I literally, I had not felt that since I read John Grisham's The Firm way back when I was in college and I couldn't stop reading this book. And I kept calling my girl and I kept saying, you're not gonna believe this. This guy is amazing. Like, and she's like, okay, okay, okay. And I just kept saying, this book is crazy. So when you say, it's so great that you say, tell no one. Number one, it's the first book of yours I read. And number two, it was your breakout book, right? Yeah. Tell me what it felt like after all those years of trying to get better, trying to get better, trying to get better. So all of a sudden, I'm going to say this, you hit it big. Yeah. What is that? Uh, well, it felt really good. <laughs> but, you know, it's, you, know, you, you talk about before the, um, you know, the, 
that positivity and, and the belief. But I think what people have to understand is that positivity also comes with a tremendous amount of self-doubt and insecurity. So if you think to yourself, wow, they're really positive, both of them, they think they can do it. No, I mean, part of the time is every book, when I finish a book, for example, every book I finish, I go, wow, that's it. You're done. You'll never have another good idea. You know, you have to get a real job. You're going to have to wake up at eight, six in the morning and sell flare pens at a pharmacy, you know, whatever it is, all this sort of fears. Um, and the, the book sucks and you're no good anymore. I still get that. I know Stephen King still gets that. And if you don't get that, if you don't have that doubt, you're probably not a writer. So if you're sitting there listening to us thinking, wow, geez, I'm really not nearly as confident. We're not confident in that way. You have to, you have to really doubt your own work. You have to, sometimes you have to hate it. You have a love affair with it. That's the normal insecurity stuff that you have to go through. And I think when you lose that, when you start to think, wow, this is really great. It's sort of genius. And I'm on my way. That's when you become that author who's starting to, to phone it in. I'm lucky enough to have you friends with a lot of your favorite authors. The ones who are still doing it well, always keep those sort of doubts and those sort of worries and, and still care what you think and all of that. And most authors do not outgrow that. You know, Mary Higgins Clark, who was a close friend of mine, just recently died at 90. I think Mary was 93 in January. She died almost a year. introduced me to her one night. I'll never forget That's that. That's right. I yeah. So Mary, I think Mary was around 89. We were at lunch together. And she was so upset. She was kind of like tearing up. And I'm like, what's wrong? And she had a really bad review in People Magazine. And I'm like, Mary, you, I mean, you still care about that stuff? And I was like, yeah, she still does. Even Mary Higgins Clark. <laughs> So the point is, is that when you stop, you know, so don't worry about those sort of insecurities. You got to push through them. The difference is some people get paralyzed by that and some people let it fuel. Yeah. Try to let those doubts fuel you. I don't know if I answered that question or I was yeah. going to answer that question, but we're, yeah. we're, we're grooving. No, no, you did. And the other day, literally, I left my writing cave. I went back to the house and I had a smile on my face. And my wife says to me, what's what, what's like, what's going on? I was like, <laughs> I just figured out the plot for my next novel. And it was such a relief. I, and I didn't know I was smiling, but I, it was, it's such a relief when you kind of, cause you're always thinking, I, I don't know about you, but I'm always thinking story, always listening, yeah. seeing the news, whatever. I always think of what's a good story. And when that moment hits you, it's like euphoria. Right. But it's, a, but it's also a diamond mining where you are going through a lot of stuff before you find that little thing that's valuable. And the part is you don't know what's valuable and what's not. So you got to do all that mining to get to it. You can't just find that diamond in the middle of the, you have to knock down all the walls around you and everything like that. And you just don't know when it's going to fall out. And then all of a sudden when it falls out, you go, wow, that was quick. It was like, no, it wasn't. You were, you've been hitting those walls for months, maybe <laughs> years to just find that one little pebble. I mean, so I have notebooks full of like, what ifs. I'm always thinking of what ifs. And then when I give you the idea of how I came up with the what if, it sounds like it was fast, but that was just, you know, it didn't happen fast. That was one of the hundred thousand I've done. And that one happens to be the one that's stuck in land, you know, sticks to landing, so to speak. Yeah. So, you know, with you, Harlan, if you were to say, if you look back and say over your disappointments, all of us have disappointments in our career. What disappointment kind of sticks in your mind as one, a disappointment, but two, also something that became a lightning rod for you? You know, it's, it's hard. I'm one of those guys who also, you know, I sort of dismiss the disappointments as if you didn't experience those, I wouldn't be where I was now. So when people ask the question slightly differently, saying, if you can go back and mm -hmm. change one thing, I'm like, I wouldn't change anything. Maybe I wouldn't be where I am now, even if I did something right earlier on. So the things I did wrong 
ended up mm-hmm. working out for me. Now, maybe there's something right. It would have happened book three instead of book 10 or whatever, but I'm really happy with where I am. So, the dis- you know, look, I spent years, I guess the biggest disappointment career-wise, I spent years, now it seems again like it was easy, trying to get something made. I mean, a, a TV show or movies made for years, and, and I can't, and thankfully I was paid well, but I would be getting all sorts of options, and Tom Hanks is reading it, and Tom Cruise is reading it, and Julia Roberts is reading you know, all these people want to make it, and for years it was a tease. And now, you know, have a the, the situation I have with Netflix is pretty perfect. So for those who don't know, I have The Stranger on Netflix, if you've seen that, Safe, and The Five, and The Woods. So I have four shows on Netflix right now with two or three more coming out this year. Um, so if you put Harlan Coben in your Netflix search, they'll pop up. They're all between six and eight episodes. Um, suspense thrillers, there's no second season. I don't do second seasons. And hopefully hopefully you'll enjoy them. Um, but that was, you know, I'm now in my, you know, like I said, I'm going to be 59 next week. It didn't happen when I was 30 or even 40. You know, it didn't happen until I was deep in my 50s. I mean, let's be honest. I'm glad you mentioned the Netflix series. So four already on air, all of them mega hits. And what I love, and I'm a Netflix junkie, by the way. I watch this stuff all day, every day. I watch it. And my favorite, actually, is British stuff. British, they, for some reason, I feel like the Brits get this stuff really well. But yeah. what I love about your stuff is because I know your books, because I get your advanced copy, thankfully, to your publisher every year. Because I have your books and I read your books, and then I look at the Netflix representation. And I know Hollywood is Hollywood. It changes stuff, blah, blah, blah. I get that. But what I love about your uh, broadcast work is your streaming work is it gives you the same feeling. I feel equally immersed in your Netflix as I do in the books. And I'll never forget like the stranger. And, you know, I could just couldn't stop watching it. And I knew what was coming up, but I couldn't (laughs) stop myself. I mean, like that, that, that to me is no small feat. And that to me is your gift. Your gift is to be able to really hook people and then they can't let go. So that being said, Harlan, Wynn, which is one of the greatest characters uh, that has about, has not got his debut, but is coming up in March. It'll be a book of the month club for us on the doctors, the main selection. I wanted to read real quickly the opening. So for people who've not read you, so they understand why the world is so excited when you posted the cover, speaking of covers, when you posted on Instagram, the cover of Win from behind and all of us who know and love the character. Um, and by the way, just for the record, I want people to know Win's full name. Windsor Horn Lockwood III. Lockwood III. There we go. Okay, here we go. The shot that will decide the championship is slowly arching its way toward the basket. I do not care. Everyone else in Indianapolis's Lucas Oil Stadium stares at the ball with open mouth, with, with mouth open. I do not. I stare across the court at him. My seat is courtside, of course, near the center line. An A-list Marvel superhero actor sporting a tourniquet-type show biceps. Black T sits on my left. You know him. And the celebrated rapper mogul Swag Daddy, whose private jet I bought three years ago, dons his own brand of sunglasses to my left. I like Sheldon, that's Swag Daddy's real name, both the man and his music, but he cheers and glad hands past the point of sycophantic, and it makes me cringe. As for me, I sport a Seville Row hand-tailored suit of pinstripe azure, a pair of Bedfordshire bespoke Bordeaux-hued shoes created by Basil, the master craftsman at G.J. Cleverly's, 
a limited edition Lily Pulitzer silk tie of pink and green, and a specifically created Hermes pocket square, which flares out from the left breast pocket with celestial precision. I am quite the rake. I am also, for those missing the subtext, rich. <laughs> I mean, I mean that. I mean, that's how you start. That's Win. For anyone who don't know, they don't know who Win is. That right. dude, you just in two paragraphs just gave us Win. People are excited about Win. Are you excited? This Win has his own. Win is the star now. Yeah. Well, you know, for years, for those who don't know the Myron and Win series, and of course, that's a lot of you. You know, Sherlock had Watson, Batman has Robin, uh, Captain America has Bucky, Spencer had Hawk, and Wynn has been Myron's sidekick and probably most people's favorite character since I created him 25 years ago. Um, and people have been asking for his own book for years, and I've always said no. I, um, I, I think side characters are supposed to be side characters, not supposed to be leads. So I, I resisted it for a long time. But then I came up with an idea, um, and I, I toyed around in another book called Home with giving Wynn a few scenes from his viewpoint, and I love the voice. But I came up with an idea that I could be in Wynn's head the entire time, and there would be no need for Myron. And once I had that idea, um, I said, let's give it a try. And I wrote about 50 pages and I sent it to my publisher and they're like, oh, that, oh, dude, dude, this is what you're writing now. And I was very much into it. So um, I, I don't think I've been this excited about a new release in a long time. I'm looking forward. You know, it's people have very high expectations. I like that pressure. That's the other side of being a writer or being, you know, I'm trying, trying to be ambitious at anything is like an athlete. You want the pressure. Um, I want to, you know, to to take the risk. I, and I know that that, that I, I, I feel like I'm going to deliver in the big moment. So that's what I'm hoping Win does. I'm going to be mindful of your time. I just got a few more things I want to ask you. One, I want to say, ask you, when your book finally hits, and I've had this experience, so I know exactly how it feels for me. When the book finally hits the New York Times bestseller list, after all this work, I mean, all mm -hmm. this work, and your agent or your editor tells you this, what happens to you? It's a pretty great feeling. Um, the, the very first time I hit the New York Times bestseller list was the day my fourth child was born. So wow. uh, you know, we, we get to celebrate two things on every July 11th. Um, but yeah, and the one thing is you start, you know, it's such an accomplishment. It's, it's, it's you know, your version of, as if you're a tennis pro getting to Wimbledon or wherever else, getting into semifinals or whatever, you know, and it's something you can't take, you know, it's a cliche, they can't take it away from you. But, you know, every book that I'll ever write will have New York Times bestselling author on it, right? Same with you. And when I hit number one, the same thing, number one, New York Times bestselling author, they can't take it away from you. So again, I, I try to appreciate it and then I move on. You know, it's like, okay, that's not going to make your eggs taste better in the morning. You know what I mean? It doesn't change your life in that way. You still got to do the work. That's always the key. You always got to remember your eggs aren't going to taste better in the morning. Get back to work. All right, Harlan, here's the deal. I have something called um, the random seven. I'm going to ask you seven random questions, and you answer them in two sentences or less. They're just quick kind of stuff, and they're random, okay? You ready? Okay. Here we go. What do you own that's really expensive but you don't feel guilty about? Wow. I'm putting in a golf simulator. That is my answer, even though it's not here yet. I just bought it, and you and you as a golfer, I know you know you get it. It's worth it, but it's expensive. That, I'm not feeling guilty. Well, maybe I'm feeling a little guilty, but not very guilty about it. No, don't feel guilty. Stray has one in his uh, in his car. Michael Stray and a, a mutual friend of ours. Stray has one in his uh, garage, his car collecting garage, and it is fantastic. So don't feel guilty. Which person, celebrity, did you always have a crush on, and why? 
I was a little kid, uh, Julie Newmar as Catwoman on Batman TV show. She was bad and sexy, even though you were a little kid. And I know she reads the books now. And it's a tremendous honor. I've gotten emails from both. Like when I was a kid, I'm older than you, but the the the, the women we grew up with were Tina Louise playing Ginger on on Gilligan's yes. Island. Yvonne Craig is Batgirl and the Green Lady in Star Trek, and Julie Newmar as Catwoman. And my big brag will be all three have been readers of my books. So. No <laughs> brag. Really fun. My kids get, my it's friends bad. get such a kick out of it. I do too. I, you're, you're not that much older than me, so I know all. I remember them very well, and I had those crushes too. If you weren't working as a writer, what would be your dream job? You know, this is a funny question because the answer is nothing. Um, I've got, I've seen this, this is so funny. I was on a, because I'm not good at anything else. I have no other marketable skills. I'm forgetful. I'm disorganized. I'm like, like, you know, if you said to me, I have a friend, we were on a panel and asked this question. And one of my friends goes, oh, I'd be a U.S. center. I'm like, oh, please, dude, I'd be like a duvet cover. You know what I mean? I got, I got nothing else. So um, I have that would be a real problem for me because I really have no other decent marketable skills that I could you know thank God I could you know you know, and it's a weird skill making stuff up. So the answer is uh, nothing. I would be I would be I'd be like a, a be a duvet cover. Someone would have made like killed me and made me into furniture or something like. that. You're a great dad and a great husband, so you'd be a great stay-at-home dad. How about Very that? well. I'm, I'm that anyway. I was that anyway. Because Ann, my wife's yeah. a physician, as you know. You know, you guys yes. know, all, all know all about that. But being that I could work at home, for the most part, I was more stay-at-home during the raising of the four kids than my wife was. Your favorite book written by another author and why? Well, my favorite book. Uh, Philip Roth is my favorite novelist of all time. And I just recently reread American Pastoral which may not be the best, not my favorite novel, but I think it's the best novel I've ever written, the most perfect novel. So if you've never read American Pastoral by Philip Roth, I also love Poor Noise Complained, Zuckerman Unbound, the whole series. If I had to pick one author, it would be Philip Roth. If I had to pick a book for you to read to be to understand the writing process and the creative writing, it's Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott, which is a series of essays about what it's like to be a writer and how to write. Um, I would recommend that one. Who would you like to have a long dinner with who you haven't met and why? I think Obama. Um, I've never met Obama. I don't, you know, um, but I've just been reading his autobiography and I really love it. Um, he has such insight and he's already my age anyway and comes from that same world. And so um, I guess I would choose uh, Barack. Um Extremism, uh, in general, makes me angry. Um, it's always what made me angry in the past, going far right, far left, and not being able to see any other side. I, I would say currently, though, it's really the the ignorance um, and and the fact that we we just don't can't even agree on facts anymore. That that kind uh, of angers the word. It frustrates me to no end, sort of cult-like attitude where people just, you know, like we're standing on the edge of a building. In the past, you and I, you know, people could argue, tax cuts, whatever, fine, okay. But now it's like we're standing on the edge of a ledge of a huge, tall building, and one guy's saying, there's no such thing as gravity. We can both just jump off and go. No, well, yeah, there's something called gravity. No, there's not. I'm telling you, gravity is bullshit. And, you know, I'm dropping a rock, and the rock falls down, and he still says, well, that's just a rock. A person won't fall. Like, you... You can't even argue with reality anymore, and that that angers me that the people have been have been so misled at this stage of the game that we can't even agree on you know that gravity is something you know that people argue on that. Amen. Lastly, of the random seven, what does success look like to you in two sentences or less? 
success is comfort in your own skin. I think what the thing that's the, the, the positive of being, um, successful is that it really gives me the ability, um, to relax and expand my life. This is the last word of this, of this conversation. You ready? Mm -hmm. When someone comes across an article written about you a hundred years from now, what do you want that article to say about you? A good father. That's the most, a good husband, good father. That would be the most important thing. Harlan Coben. Thank you so much for joining me for our conversation. Thanks, guys. Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith is hosted by Dr. Ian Smith, associate producer Lauren Turner, executive producer Ian Smith, edited by Ken Johnson, executive producers Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.